All right, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, and we'll wrap up chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6, I'll be reading verses 66 through 71. John chapter 6, verses 66 through 71. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Amen. Here now Jesus is with the twelve, and only the twelve. It appears that everyone else has abandoned him. Remember where the chapter started? Jesus feeds 5,000. And a number, we're not certain at this point, of that 5,000 pursue him. They follow Jesus as he crosses the sea of Galilee. And they want this man who they had professed was a prophet. They wanted to make him their king. So now they're pursuing him. And as he begins to teach that crowd, little by little, their numbers begin to whittle away. This discussion in chapter 6 happens maybe over a two-day period. And Jesus goes from over, of course, the number 5,000 has to do particularly with the men, as I've said before. So if you count the women and possibly children, maybe a crowd of 20,000 people. So that crowd of 20,000 people now whittles down to 12. And all of this has to do with what Jesus is teaching and who Jesus says he is. And that is still the challenge today. Have you clearly understood what a call to discipleship is, what Jesus teaches about the nature of salvation and what Jesus teaches about himself. This is what John wants to confront us with every time we pick up his gospel. Remember why he wrote it, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing him, you may have life in his name. This is what Jesus is offering this crowd. And as they begin to understand what Jesus is teaching, they reject him. As it says in verse 66, they turn their back on him. For many people in the United States, this is why many don't go to church. Because they want to have their own particular brand and type of Jesus. A Jesus that it's comfortable for them. A Jesus that they can fit into their own life and lifestyle. 
a Jesus that is going to allow them to live however they want. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. And Jesus never backed down with regards to his teaching. You remember the various altercations in this chapter or really the questions that were posed to him. What sign will you do for us? Moses didn't do the sign. It was God who did the sign. How can this man be say he's from heaven? We know his mother. We know his father. How can this man tell us that we must drink his flesh and drink his blood? How is it that he can speak to us in this way? And Jesus at no point backed down and said, well, wait, let me clarify. Here's what I mean. He just continued to add the pressure. He continued to add the pressure. And as the multitudes leave, Jesus now presses his disciples. And what you have here is you have a vital question, then a biblical response, and a correction. I wanted to say a shocking revelation, but Jesus has been talking about this from the very beginning of his conversation with the Jews. So I think what Jesus is doing at the end there, verse 70 in particular, is he is offering a correction to Peter and to the 12. But let's start with the vital question. Do you also want to go away? In light of all that I have said, do you desire to leave me? That's what he says to his disciples. Is that your desire? Do you want to leave me now? What Jesus is doing is he's posing an ultimatum. Really, this is a call to discipleship. Now, you have heard me interact with these crowds and to clearly tell them what they must believe about me, that I am the Son of God come from heaven to die for the sins of God's people. In light of this, do you also want to go away? Do you want to leave me? And what Jesus is talking about is the call to discipleship. These kinds of calls are not new to the New Testament, though. Throughout the Old Testament, God posed these same kinds of questions to his people. This is not new with Jesus. For example, look at Joshua chapter 24. This is the second generation. Joshua has now led them into the land of promise. They have waged holy war. And in chapter 24, beginning at verse 14, well, in chapter 24, what he's going to, he concludes sort of with a sermon, this exhortation that we're going to read, and then reaffirming the covenant. But look at this section here, beginning at verse 14. Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
This is, in essence, what Jesus is saying to them is, do you want to leave with your fathers, with, with those who were here, who listened to my speech, who listened to the bread of life discourse? I just finished telling them that I am the true bread from heaven. Do you want to leave with them and go serve the idols that they serve? Because they don't serve the true and living God. Do you want to go with them? Do you desire to leave me? Do you know the conditions? What, what it's going to mean for you to follow me? What it's going to mean, they're, they're starting to get a flavor of it, right? You're going to be ostracized. Those men and women who, who you currently live with, they're going to abandon you. They're going to want nothing to do with you because you follow me. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to die for sinners. This is what we must put our hope in. But true faith then, the person who truly believes this, surrenders their entire life to Christ's governance. Christ then becomes king. They, they no longer rule over themselves. And all of their life then is lived in obedience to God. The question is posed to you today. In light of what Christ teaches about himself, do you also want to go away? Christ continues to ask this question. Of course, Peter gives us a biblical response. But look at what Joshua does to the people. This is very similar to what Jesus does in verse 70 of chapter 6. Look at what Joshua does. Look at verse 19 of chapter 24 there. You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after you after he has done you good. Moses is um, excuse me, Joshua is saying to the people, this is serious business. Making a profession of faith is not like picking a political party. Right? It's not like picking the, uh, the, the kind of license plate you want at the DMV. That's not what it's like. It's not like picking a career. It's full devotion to God. It is a commitment to believe what He says in His Word and to live in light of it. Now, G- Peter offers a biblical response. Jesus poses a challenge, and Peter, as the, really the spokesman of the twelve, Peter answers. And what does Peter say? Look at verse 68. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And this is exactly what we must do, right? We must respond to that question, to the, really to the call to discipleship. We must answer that question biblically. We must answer it the same way. Now, we don't answer it with just words. That question is answered by the way that you live in light of your profession, That's the way the question is truly and genuinely answered today. There are many people who will tell you, uh, you know, they speak speak great things about Jesus. There's a a fella, I forget his name, but uh, we have a a Christ the King uh, Facebook page. And he sends me comments, you know, on the page. And uh, this morning, he for some reason, he decided to send me a comment about... uh, you know, I hope you guys aren't meeting in cars anymore. You need to trust God or whatever, whatever. And I, every time he comments, I said, well, you just need to go to church. That's what you need to do. Stop bothering me. In essence, I'm saying, stop bothering me on Facebook. Show up to church. And he says, oh, you know, I don't go to church. I do uh, prayer walks. You know, I, just, I go prayer walking. Well, I'm happy you do that. But one, there's no exhortations. In the, you know, the only place their people prayer walk is in the book of Joshua, and that's to take over a city. <laughs> but uh, there's that lack of commitment where this man, he's, he's actually, you know, bold enough to challenge us not to meet in cars because God's going to protect us from the virus. But there's no commitment to any local church. And that's how many people are. You know, they, they make all kinds of professions of faith and they wear crosses and Jesus t-shirts. And, but there is no commitment to follow Christ. Here we have Simon Peter's words. Simon Peter, speaking up for the crowd, gives a biblical response. Lord, to whom shall we go? And Peter is saying to Jesus, go away to whom? Where are we going to go? To what person? If you have not come to Christ, where are you going for forgiveness? That's in essence what Peter's saying. Who who are we going to go to for forgiveness? Who on earth or in heaven can freely pardon us for all of our sins, Jesus? Who are we going to go to? It's not like we're going to go to the Pharisees or the Sadducees, or the scribes. We're not going to go back with this crowd who doesn't believe in anything you have to say. We're not going to turn away from you. There is no one who can freely pardon all of your sins. There is no one who humbled himself, no one who obeyed God, no one who suffered, no one who died, no one who rose, no one who will receive you when you die, and no one who will come for you at his second coming like Christ. There is no one else. We must cast ourselves wholly upon him. There's nowhere else for us to go. What a just... What an answer, right? You were, told most of, you were told never to answer a question with a question, but what an answer by Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? Now notice 
what Peter focuses on. Peter focuses on two things. So he asks this question, and in essence, it's a rhetorical question. He's giving the answer. We're not going anywhere. And this is why we're not going anywhere. Because of his, Jesus's person, excuse me, Jesus's words and Jesus's person. So his teaching and his person, what he says and who he is. These are the two things that at this point grip Peter. Now remember, there's not a full, the disciples don't have a full orb understanding of who Christ is. At this point, they're not saying to themselves, he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die and in three days he's going to rise from the dead. But they've, they know sufficiently, they know enough that they believe that he is the Christ. Listen to how he says it. You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have the words of eternal life. Not only does he have the words to eternal life, but he is his teaching, his person. The words that he's speaking and who he is. These two things, because of these two things, Jesus, we will not go anywhere else. Now, pay attention here. Uh, this, um, this announcement or this um, confession is the right term. This confession is recorded at different places in the Gospels. And I want to look particularly at this confession in Luke. Look at it in Luke with me. And it's in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18, you have this confession also. And it's a bit of, uh, the setting is a bit different. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Jesus sends out the 12 in Luke chapter 9. He feeds the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9. And it's right after he feeds the 5,000. Verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some Elijah. And others say that, one of the old prophets has risen again. And Jesus presses the point now. But who, but, uh, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Now, in verse 21, he strictly warns them and commands them and says to them, don't tell anybody about this. And then he speaks to them about his death. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So he tells them about his death plainly. In John chapter 8, he says he speaks about his death, but in a way that is hidden. He speaks about giving his flesh for the life of the world in place of it. Here in Luke 9, he's very clear to his disciples, and they don't get it. Remember in Matthew what Peter does when Jesus says this to him. He says, there's no way you can do that. And Jesus rebukes Peter. 
He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. Now, here's the connection that I want to make. Verse 23, then, is a call to discipleship. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. Do you see here the relationship? Peter says, you, are, uh, you have the words of eternal life, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says here in this call to discipleship, in a similar context where there is a confession that he is the Son of God, that the person who is ashamed of me and the words that I speak, that person is going to be ashamed on the day of judgment. And that is what Peter holds on to. The thing that the world, that the professing Christian world will be ashamed of and is ashamed of. The world is ashamed to confess who Jesus really is and what Jesus really teaches. That is really the issue. So take, you know, hot button issues, right, that we talk to about all the time. Um, uh, why do you as a Christian reject abortion vehemently? Right? You know what, generally what people will do is they'll give all kinds of scientific evidence about you know, the embryo and this, that, and third. Um, but if we were not ashamed of the Bible, we would say, because Jesus says, do not murder. That's why. That's why I am opposed to abortion in any shape, form, or fashion. Because Jesus said, I'm not ashamed of his words. And then the next thing, they're going, well, who's Jesus? He is the God of the universe. I'm not ashamed of his person. I'm, I'm not backing up into any philosophical, um, ethical argument besides this. God said so. That's why. And this is what Peter focuses on. Whoever is ashamed of me, Peter is saying, we are not ashamed of you and we are not ashamed of the things that you are teaching. And the immediate context, of course, in John is on Christ's redemptive work. What he has been teaching so far about who he is in light of our salvation, and what he will do in light of our need for salvation. But when you look at this statement in light of the other context where, where this confession is made about who Christ is, it has broader applications. It just doesn't have to do with uh, salvation. It has to do with all of life. How, how then will we live how are we going to live if Jesus has the words of eternal life and if he is the Christ, the son of the living God? 
Are we going to live lives uh, like, uh, you know, um, are we going to live like, um, what's that little creature that lives under this walkway we have here? What is it? Little groundhog. Are we going to live like groundhogs constantly looking at the dirt? No. As Christian people, we, we live with our eyes fixed on heaven. We're not just consumed with what is going on in this, on this planet. Right? Got to pay the bills. Got to go to work. Got to, you know. No. Our lives will be given over primarily in, in, right, in our various spheres, as spheres, as husbands, as wives, as children, as employees, as employers. We're going to live in all of those different spheres as citizens. We're going to live in all of those different spheres with our eyes focused upon heaven, not looking just, you know, how many hours do I have to work this week to make the rent? No, we're going to live every aspect of our life with, the, those, with that great influence. What does Jesus say and who is Jesus? That is going to drive our entire life. So that's the broader context. Now his words, right? You have the words of eternal life. The words that Jesus speaks are the source of eternal life. If a person wants to have eternal life, he must give heed and attention to these words. And that's not just the words of the gospel, it's not of the gospels, it's not just the red letter words that are the words of Jesus, it's all the words that are in this book. We must give our attention to them. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Could people do, you know, people that know you well, will they say that about you? Could they say that about you? If, if we were uh, to ask around, um, the Puritans, what they would do when somebody was joining a church is they would go to your neighborhood and they would talk to your neighbors. Hey, do you know John Smith lives right over here? Yeah, we know him. So he wants to join our church. What kind of fella is he? Is he honest? Has he ever stolen any of your you know, tools, your sheep, donkeys? Is he a drunk? Does he fight with his wife? You know, is he And then they would go to your employer if you worked for somebody and Hey, hi, does John Smith work here? Yeah, he works here. What kind of employee is he? Is he lazy? Is he late to work? Right? What were they looking for? They were looking to see if these people who were trying to join themselves with their churches actually believed that Jesus had the words of eternal life and if they believed that Jesus was truly the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because if he is... It's going to influence every aspect of your life. You will live like it. You're not going to live. Uh, when we say these things, it's, it's uh, you know, we live in a climate where you have to add some caveats. I'm not saying that you live sinlessly perfect. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that you live consistently like a Christian. 
which means that you ask for forgiveness, you confess your sins, you pursue righteousness in every aspect of your life. Does, do you believe that Jesus' words are the source of eternal life? Do you? Easy answer to that question is, what does your life look like? Do you live like it? His person. Now, his words were rejected by the crowds. They didn't believe him. They left. How about his person? He is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised Redeemer. Would you, uh, do you confess that he is the seed that was promised to Eve in the garden? That he is the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, that he is the king of the universe. That's who we serve. You know, people take uh, pride in having served in the military. And then once people serve, you know, then out of that group that served in the military, depending upon the branch of the military, they, you know, pride themselves against each other. And then, depending on the branch, then there are the special forces inside those branches. And those guys, you know, exercise some pride over each other. How much more should we who serve the king of the universe? Does that even sound childish to you? Does that sound something like is laughable? Does that sound like a, a fiction? Because it's absolutely true. In heaven, which is another realm, there is a man who lived in this world for 30 some odd years to deliver his people from sin and hell. And he has a resurrection body and he intercedes for us before God his Father. That's reality. That, that's not cartoon made up fiction that is absolutely true do you live like that like and not only that he's come he's gonna come back for me or he's waiting there for me one or the other i might go see him one day but he is definitely coming back do i live like that do i live like those things are absolutely true can i confess that now again peter and the disciples here had a limited knowledge they didn't know the ending of the story yet as they're living it, as Peter is making this confession. He doesn't know the end of the story yet. It's not clear to him what's going to happen. Remember, even John the Baptist, who says in John's gospel, behold the Christ, the Son of the living God. This, that's who he is. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, has to ask, are you the coming one? Are you him? Because I'm not sure. Right? So there was a lack of clarity here. They don't know everything that's going to happen. But in light of everything that's going to happen, these words have a new weight and impact when we read them. Do you believe his words and do you believe who he is? Do you believe that he is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God? Think about how little they knew and how much they believed in their confession. And think about how much we know and how little we believe. We have so little confidence in what God can actually do 
you know, think think about the hopes and the aspirations that you have for this church. Are they small? I would venture to say that um, if you have a church in an area like this, a church this size can have a great impact on this area. If we lived like we believed the words and we believed who spoke them. How many disciples turned the world upside down? It was just 12 of them. And they were, none of them, as far as I know, none of them went to seminary. How little they knew, how much they believed. We need to remember this. How little, and and now, now think of what Peter says though, because now Jesus is going to offer some correction. He says we. And that we is emphatic. He's saying us 12 here. And this really, this reveals how little we truly know of men's souls. There's so much that we don't actually know about people, about the condition of their soul. The 12 or the 11 would have thought that Judas is, was with us. Think about how much grace, and even in light of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 that we've been looking at, how much external privilege Judas had. He was in on all of these conversations. It's like Judas had an in that nobody else had beside the other 11 disciples. He knew all of this truth. He was able to see all of these things. He was able to see Christ interact with his disciples, Christ pray to his father, Christ minister to the sick, Christ preach to the crowd, Christ perform miracles before the crowds and in private. He was in on all of these things. And how little did that affect him? Judas was a reprobate. That's what Judas was. But he was such a deceiver. He was such a son of his father, the devil, that the 11 were absolutely deceived. Um. Jesus does not want his disciples to be shaken or shocked when Judas turns. You think about how hard Judas's heart had to be to turn away from Jesus, who had the words of eternal life and who was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was a hard-hearted man. Religious, one author put it this way, religious privileges alone are not enough to save our souls. It's not enough. Having religious privileges is not enough. Efficacious grace makes children of wrath children of God. And apart from that efficacious grace, there is no life. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says in John 6, Jesus answered them, Did 
I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil. So you had this vital question. Are you going to go away also with the crowds? You had this biblical response. We have come to believe. There's a very true sense where when it comes to the issue of redemption, you, just, you need to speak for yourself. You can't vouch for every other person because you don't really know what's going on in the heart. Now, there are certain evidences and fruits and a level of confidence that we can have, but ultimately, the deep things in a man's heart we do not know. But Christ knew them because he knew all men. Listen to um, uh, Christ. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And here, for choosing, Jesus just means, uh, I put you in this office. I put the twelve in this office. This word is used several times throughout the New Testament to, to make this exact point, where he's not talking about election unto salvation. He's not saying, I chose Judas to be saved, but Judas turned out to lose what he had. That's not the point. He's saying, I chose him to this particular office. I chose him to be an apostle. But he's not a a, a disciple. He's a devil. Jesus, (laughs) uh, it's interesting in John how many times Jesus brings this up. Listen to it in John 13. In John 13, beginning at verse 10, Jesus says, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. (laughs) He keeps pointing it out, right? I'm talking to all of you, but not all of you are clean. I know that there's one here who is not clean. Christ tells us plainly in John 17, 12, that Judas was the son of perdition. And the reason why Judas is in that office and in that place is because the Scripture prophesied that he would turn Christ over to the civil authorities. That's in Psalm 41.9. And what Jesus is doing here, of course, is he, he's giving them this warning. Don't, don't presume on the faith of others. Don't presume upon their faith and love. Don't do that. Speak for yourself. Have confidence that you believe with regards to other men. Love hopes all things, right? It's not like you walk around thinking, oh, that guy's lost, you know, that guy's discount. No, love hopes all things. We hope that they are, but don't presume. Don't presume to speak for people about their relationship to the Lord because not only Judas, but there, were, there are very many people in the Bible who were recipients of this external grace who turned away at the last moment. This is a great warning to unconverted people. We might not know, we might not ever tell. God does. He knows. You're, you're not really deceived. You're, you're, the, the, the plan to deceive is, won't work. 
This is also a warning to believers. There are deceivers and will be deceivers among us. It's going to happen. They went out from us, which assumes that they were at some point a part of us. And we have to be on guard, which means we must know the word and we must know the person whom we are serving. And this also is a comfort for believers. Sometimes when those unbelievers leave the church, it's like, you know, they take a little bit of your soul with them because you lived with them for so long. But God knows. We could find great comfort in that. Not great comfort in that they're not following the Lord, but great comfort that our Heavenly Father prepared this very situation for your good and for your growth and for the blessing and for blessing the church. Now, when Jesus hears this confession from Peter in Matthew, in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says this to him. And this is, I think he's making the same point in John, but uh, he uses the opposite doctrinal truth. In John what he does is he gives a warning to Peter. Don't presume, Peter. Warn. In, the, in Matthew, he actually gives an encouragement. Look at, listen to it in Matthew. After he makes a confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says to him, Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God is the one who enabled you to make this confession, Peter. God has not given that gift to Judas. That's serious stuff. That's the kind of stuff that makes people not want to follow Jesus. That's the kind of stuff that when people hear, they say, oh, those must not be the words of eternal life. Or they say, that must not be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because for him to say something like that, that Judas is not receiving this gift, that Peter is receiving, that's favoritism. That's, that's something that's not Christian. There's got to be, you know, even playing field. But what we must remember is that every person is guilty before God. Every person. Peter, Judas, they both as guilty as you and I are. And we have to remember not only that they are guilty, but they are guilty because they are children of Adam. And because of that, they sin. And the wages of sin is death. And we all deserve eternal punishment. All of us, every last single person sitting in this room, every person on the planet and every person that's ever been on the planet besides Jesus deserves the eternal wrath of God. But God sent his son into the world that through him the world might be saved. And then what God does is he sends messengers into the world to preach that good news. And all who believe that good news are saved, and all who reject it are damned. And that salvation is a gift. 
Right? What does Paul say in Ephesians? I've referenced the text several times, but here it is. For, God, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? If I have a gift for you, and I never give it to you, do you get it? No. I've got to give the gift for you to have it. And there are some people to whom God gives that gift, and to some he does not. All of this occurs with or in agreement with God's decree. God graciously softens the hearts of some, and the obstinate, even obstinate people, and what he does is he inclines them to believe. And the others he leaves in his judgment to their own wickedness. Now, when you hear those truths, you can fall into two categories. The first is, I can't believe in a God like that. The second category is, how unbelievable, how unbelievably merciful God is. Because there were many of us who deserve to go to hell, and He's sending us to heaven based upon nothing we've done. You see, it's it's a it's a diamond. But if you're what what do you call it? Your little magnifying glass. If you stuck your thumb on it before you picked it up to look at the diamond, it's not clear. You got to clean the dirt off so that you can see it rightly. And what you have to do is drop your high view of man. You've got to see that humanity, mankind, because of our fall in Adam, we are children of wrath. You've got to have you've got to have a higher view of the mercy of God and a low view and estimation of what man is in his fallenness. So what this does is it displays the mercy of God and at the same time his righteousness. This election, this choice of God is an is unchangeable. God freely chooses and all he chooses come to believe in the Son. And he chooses them in the Son before the foundation of the world, is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.4, speaking to believers. He says, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world for a particular end, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And why does God do this? For his good pleasure. It's solely because of the good pleasure of God. Now, I'm going long on this, right? You might be thinking to yourself, why is he going so long on this? Because these are the doctrines in the Bible that challenge people the most. This is where the issues are. When, when God shows up in the Bible and says, I'm going to do my holy will is when the human heart bucks and says, oh, wait a minute, you know, all of this love and dying for sins and mercy and grace. and I like that. Give, give, give me more of that because that's what I want. 
But there are places in the Bible where Jesus says stuff like he says here, Judas is a son of perdition, and we don't like it. And that distorts our our view of who God is. It lessens who God is. It really draws the mercy and grace out of salvation. Listen to what it says. uh, Peter preaches the gospel to Gentiles, and it says this in Acts 13, 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Those are the ones that believed. They were appointed to eternal life. And again, you have those two perspectives. One perspective will say, "Mm, I don't, that's got to mean something different. That can't mean that he just selected some of those Gentiles. Or on the other side, you could say, how gracious and good is that God that he would choose any. In due time, and in various degrees, and in different measures, the elect attain assurance of salvation. And the reason I'm bringing, what I'm doing, well, why would I bring that up? Because there are probably people who are sitting here today who think about the doctrine of election and what it causes them to do primarily is say, well, then I don't think I'm a Christian. And that is not the purpose of the doctrine. And this has to do with a misunderstanding of the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. We have to remember that in various degrees and in different measures we attain assurance of salvation. We come to the point where we know that eternal life is ours. And in light of God's election, I have been saved. But you don't come to assurance by trying to figure out first if you're elect. That's not what the doctrine is for. Jesus wasn't telling the disciples, right? Jesus wasn't saying this about Peter for them to ask themselves, well, am I elect? Which one of us here is elect? Let's let's figure out who's more righteous, who believes in Jesus more, who's more zealous, who's... No, that wasn't his point. He's, He's bringing them back to the truth that he had already been preaching in John, which is no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise him up on the last day. He had already taught this truth. Now he's showing it in a negative capacity. But this is not the basis for assurance. The basis for assurance is not, I know I'm elect. We have no reason to pry into the secret and deep things of God. But look to yourself. Where's your spiritual joy? Pleasure in the things of God. Do you have them? Do you believe that Jesus has the words of God? Excuse me, that Jesus has the words of everlasting life? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And when you come to that place where you say, yeah, I do believe those things, what should erupt in the heart is thanksgiving to God. Because I would not have believed apart from God granting me, by grace, the free gift of faith. 
great humility, worship, a sense of God's mercy, gratefulness should manifest in the life of a person because he sees the infinite grace God bestowed. And although it seems here that Jesus ends the chapter sort of on a negative note, right? This seems negative. Peter makes this grand biblical confession in light of the question that Jesus asks, and and Jesus basically reigns on his parade. Peter, Judas is going to hell, guys. That's, 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 that's not the note of the chapter. What Jesus is focusing on is, as I said, the point that was made in Matthew 16. He's just doing, giving a negative example. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. The reason you can make this confession is because the Father has chosen to make you his son. And for those of us here who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus will say the same. Blessed are you. You are blessed for this. Yet Jesus holds no person back. In speaking to the crowd, in speaking to this multitude, what was he repeatedly saying to them? It's really captured at the beginning of the discourse. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And that is the exhortation today. Believe in him. Do you believe his words? What he says in this book. Do you receive him, his person, as he is presented to you in this book? The son of God, the only savior of the world. Do you submit yourself? Do you come under those means that he has ordained to give life and to produce fruit in the life of a believer? Christian fellowship, the preaching of the word, the Lord's Supper, baptism. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, ask and it shall be given you. If you ask, With humility, if you ask with genuine faith, the Lord is more than willing to give grace to the person who seeks it. Therefore, ask. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we praise you, Lord Christ, because you are the son of the living God. In your name we pray. Amen.